Welcome to episode four of the 1796 podcast, a monthly podcast that features exclusive interviews and in-depth news about the Tennessee National Guard and the Tennessee Military Department. The 1796 podcast is produced every month by the airmen and soldiers of the Tennessee National Guard Joint Public Affairs Office. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Marty Malone with Captain Taylor Hall, and we are your co-hosts of the 1796 podcast. On this episode, we'll hear from Staff Sergeants John Sharble and Charles Cox, who are enlisted crew members on Black Hawk helicopters that, most recently, have been flying to relieve wildfires and rescue those in need in the Smoky Mountains region. We also sit down with the commander of the 134th Air Refueling Wing, Colonel Lee Hartley, to discuss the ribbon cutting of their new maintenance hangar and what that means for the wing's future. And of course, we'll brief you on the latest news impacting the Tennessee National Guard in our Tennessee Bluff News segment. Now over to Captain Hall with the interview of our helicopter crew chiefs. This was our first interview away from the studio, so you may hear some audio discrepancies. Bear with us as we continue to improve. excited to welcome Staff Sergeant Sharble and Staff Sergeant Cox to the podcast today to discuss the domestic mission of the Army National Guard Aviation Support Facility based at McGee Tyson. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and why you wanted to serve in the military. I first joined in September of 2005. Uh, that's about a month after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, that's specifically why I joined the Guard um, was the that particular event it was a catalyst. I'd been thinking about joining for a couple of years. I'd worked as an EMT in Knox County uh, in East Tennessee and uh, just decided it was after Katrina and all the issues with that, that it, that was the right time to join. Uh, yeah, so I joined in April of 2010. Uh, I had always wanted to be in the military, and I think I had—I was about to turn 27 at the time, so I was getting a little bit older, and I just knew that uh, it was now or never kind of situation. Um, I didn't have any real reason other than, you know, just kind of a call to join the military. And can you tell us more about the mission here at the Army Aviation Support Facility? You're both medics, and so tell us what it's like to be a part of rescue operations throughout East Tennessee and specifically in the Smokies. Uh, yeah, so, well, the cool thing about our mission is, like, I guess you'd say the, the main mission is to save lives, is to help people, but there are just, like, so many different components to it. We get to do a ridiculous amount of different things, um, and you kind of never really know what's going to happen next. Uh, you know, we've had, this unit's had combat deployments uh, in the last couple of years. We've had two rotations over to Kosovo as a NATO, uh, I guess, peacekeeping kind of mission. Uh, we pull people out of the backcountry up in the Smokies and the surrounding area. Uh, We drop uh, water buckets on uh, wildfires. Uh, We do hurricane disaster relief. Uh, Yeah, we we do all sorts of stuff. So it's just a really cool mission around here. So speaking of all those different ways that you serve people in Tennessee, the average Tennessean may not see the result of your work on a day-to-day basis. Uh, They may only see it in the news. But can you help us better understand the process? When you get a call to launch, what happens next? Um, Obviously, there's an approval process for what we have to go through because we are a military component. um, And we have to be able to do things uh, legally and not step on the toes of any 
state agencies or local agencies and things like that. Usually by the time that we're called, it's when all those things have been considered and there doesn't seem to be another viable or safe option. Um, both of us have worked in the National Park and for the National Park Service um, on our civilian side. So we have this understanding of, with the park in particular, who we have a very great relationship with, that there are certain criteria that we that have to be met for us to be on mission to pull somebody out of the park. Um, and it has to be, once it meets those criteria, we can launch. And it, a lot of times it can be something as simple as a remote section of the park, very hard to get to, but somebody's got a broken leg. They're not hiking out, and it's more dangerous to get a team in there to get them out than it is for us to use our hoist. Yeah, and a lot of the time, uh, you know, somebody's in the backcountry who's injured, uh, you're looking at, I mean, they might get injured, and there's no cell, cell reception in the mountains, so somebody who's with them or a bystander who comes on them has to hike out, you know, possibly multiple hours to even get a cell uh, to get cell reception, and then they can alert the national park, who then alerts us or Tima, and uh, so I mean someone can be injured in the backcountry for hours before anybody can even get to them. So that's another you know component uh, when we're considered is you know this person's been in the backcountry suffering for X amount of hours. Uh, we could hike people in and carry them out, or we could send a helicopter that can be there in 15 minutes. So speed is obviously a big factor in your mission and put critical care pre-hospital medicine on that patient much quicker than yeah. getting a ground team to them. Tell us a little bit more about working the recent wildfires that you were a part of helping to extinguish. Personally, that's uh, one of my favorite parts of the mission was is the, the firefighting. We have a 600-gallon bucket that uh, it's it sounds like a lot, but relatively speaking, especially compared to a lot of the apparatus that are out uh, in the western part of the country it's not a lot but we do we can effectively knock down a fire line and get help get control of the fire i mean really it's the people on the ground that do a lot of the hard work but being able to contribute to that is it's one of the more dangerous things that we do but it's also one of the more to be honest fun things that we do is be able to sling some water onto uh to fires and from the air you can actually see the result of your work uh, yeah, we we can. We can see, a um, in the case of the uh, Seymour fire, we could see a really strong fire line going down the uh, down the slope. And after the process of dumping buckets on it, we got to see that all that smoke kind of dissipate and start to break up. And it was like, oh, cool, that's, that's us being effective. So for our final question, a lot of kids and even a lot of young adults dream of being a part of this type of mission set where they get to rescue people and fight fires. What's a piece of advice that you would give to young soldiers and airmen who may want to be a part of this type of mission in the future? Uh, I mean, it's a process. Uh, nobody just gets to show up and do what we do. Um, you've really got to want to be here. Uh, you know, just about anybody for the most part can join the military, um, but we're definitely a specialized unit and we're lucky to be part of it. Uh, having said that, we've put in the time to be here. Uh, so if you want to get into the medevac or any specialized component of the military, you know, it's just having the heart to do it, putting in the time and the work. Yeah, there's a, 
there's constant learning involved. Um, our standard operating procedures change often as new information comes in. Um, and as far as for being, for the advice for little kids that are aspiring, like we were talking about with the firefighting, we're airborne firefighters in that aspect of our mission. So like John said, it's a whole lot of school. It is a long process, but it's a process that is incredibly rewarding. Um, both of us have our individual packs of kids that for me personally, um, it is a group. It's great to see their eyes light up when I come home and they're just like, Hey, what'd you do in the army today? What, you know, did you fight fire? Did you go get a, you know, somebody off the mountain and all that kind of stuff. It's great to be able to tell them some stories and say, Hey, you know, I do something that's personally rewarding and rewarding for my family. Well, Sergeant Cox and Sergeant Sharple, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, yeah, sir. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Captain Hall. Up first this month in the Tennessee Bluff, the Tennessee Army National Guard is hosting the National Best Warrior Competition to find the best soldier and NCO from among the entire 54 National Guards. 14 of the best warriors from seven different regions will be in Tennessee the last week of July to compete for the privilege and the bragging rights to be called the best warrior as a soldier and as an NCO from the entire Army National Guard. The top finishers will go on to represent the National Guard and compete in the All-Army Contest against 10 other Army commands from across the globe. The event will span from Milan to Lynchburg and will challenge the competitors in events such as weapon skills, land navigation, the combat fitness test, obstacle course, survival swimming, Army warrior tasks, a 16-mile ruck march, a board interview, and a myriad of other soldier tasks. A highlight of the competition will include a Valor Run. It is a nearly four kilometer run consisting of six stations. Each station highlights a different Medal of Honor recipient. When the competitor arrives, they will read the recipient's citation and then traverse a course that recreates the tasks that the recipient performed to earn the Medal of Honor. Tennessee has two of the 14 individuals competing for Best Warrior. Sergeant Zachary Kleinfelder from the NCO category and Specialist Grayson Vaughn from the Soldier category. Best of luck to you both. In other news, the Tennessee National Guard is hosting a Youth Development Week this year. The camp will be held at Boxwell Reservation in Lebanon, Tennessee from July 17th through the 23rd, and it's for Tennessee National Guard dependents ages 9 to 17. Youth will be learning about leadership, team building, resilience, and military etiquette while participating in outdoor games and arts and crafts. The Child and Youth Program Office is still looking for just a few more volunteers to help. If you are a Tennessee Guard member and interested in volunteering or signing your child up, please go to tn.gov military, click Programs and Benefits, then click Family Programs. Reach out to Michaela Gregory. Her contact info is there on the website. That's our Tennessee Bluff for this month. Up next, the 1796 podcast sits down with Colonel Lee Hartley, commander of the 134th Air Refueling Wing, to discuss their new hangar and how East Tennessee is the perfect place for the Air Force to base the new KC-46 Pegasus. All right, well, we are thrilled to welcome to the podcast Colonel Lee Hartley, who's the commander of the 134th Air Refueling Wing based in Knoxville. Colonel Hartley, thanks for your time today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning, and I look forward to our time together. So tell us a little about yourself and how you came to be the commander of the 134th. Sure. Uh, Knoxville native, grew up here in East Tennessee, graduated high school in 1987, then off to the Air Force Academy, and then active duty for about six and a half, seven years. 
then I had the opportunity to palace chase back into the guard, uh, kind of a, a unique time uh, in, the, in the military as it began. The Air Force was downsizing, and so, uh, like many folks, f- friendly or family and friends here, and, and then just made those connections back here and been in this unit, the 134th, uh, since 1997. Uh, then just kind of worked my way around the base, and, and then had the fortunate pleasure of being the being the commander here uh, since 2018. Well, June 3rd was a really big day for the 134th with the ribbon cutting for the new hangar. Tell us about the event and the significance of the event. So that absolutely was a absolutely huge milestone uh, for the 134th, specifically our aircraft maintenance group. Um, we've been the hangars that we currently are in or kind of circa 1952 when the base was first established here. And so you can imagine wear and tear through the years and just trying to keep up with with uh, the, the maintenance activities that, that are there and growing maintenance challenges with, with our KC-135 aircraft. So to see that culmination come to come to pass was, was a great day for us kind of thing. And so um, in earnest, we've been trying to make that uh, happen now for about a decade and so being able to do that was it was absolutely huge and it and it you know helps consolidate a lot of the maintenance functions to gain the efficiencies that you, that you need um, the second piece of it that it really does uh, and, and I think we'll get to it is it sets the base up really well it's kind of one of the centerpieces we have uh, as the KC-46 which is the new air refueling aircraft uh, that the Air Force is purchasing. It sets us up very well for that because, well, we did it on Friday. You can roll one right in there uh, without without uh, any modification. So we're we're continuing to plan for the future. That's that's awesome. Well, and you mentioned the age of the KC-135 KC being almost 70 years old, probably older than most people listening to this podcast. Uh, but that speaks to the vital, vital mission of the refueling mission to our national security. Can you tell us a little bit about to our listeners why this is such an important mission who may not be familiar with it? So absolutely. So of the five core missions in that rapid global mobility being the one that that we fall in in the KC-135, we're kind of in, in many ways what makes our Air Force, your Air Force, unique uh, around the world. So first of all, we're the enablers for let's say the mission of air superiority we're also the enablers for global strike again nobody can pick up and move people around the world as quickly as this air force can to say it another way we're a flying gas station right and so any other aircraft that moves around the world needs fuel to get there Um, an example of that you may have an aircraft that takes off uh, out of the the midwest and then proceeds westbound. And if you have those, let's call them flying gas stations, sprinkled along the way, they can get over and back in a matter of hours, not days and weeks. And so that's a real force multiplier as as the Air Force projects force and influence around the world. And the 134th has been flying the refueling mission for decades now. Why do you believe that this unit is so well positioned for the future of the refueling mission? So there's, there's a lot of things that, uh, that make McGee-Tyson unique. The, the Knoxville Chamber, or the local chambers is probably better said, will tell you that we're Knoxville's within a day's drive of two-thirds of the population of the United States. Well, 
that's also in many cases for homeland defense where you need refueling support for those other those other combat air forces that might be providing oversight and overwatch in, in that sort of uh, in that sort of scenario. So that's number one here. Now it's also very convenient for us as the United States. Again, we mentioned earlier projects force uh, and deliver delivers air refueling to the joint force. So strategically we're the right place it's it's a great place to live we have no problems recruiting those sorts of things so it's the right place for sure the other thing i would tell you is we've been working on uh you know making ourselves ready for the future for the better part of a decade the hangar being the most recent example 10,000 foot runway that we were able to partner with the local airport authority on which is another you know roughly 140 million dollars and i'm not talking about a resurfaced runway. I'm talking about a brand new runway, which will last for decades to come. So it's the right cost. Um, and then the infrastructure that's here with the other mission sets that we host on the base. So between cyber, the schoolhouse that's here for the Air Force that does our non-commissioned officer academy and airman leadership schools for professional military education, all of those things combined together put the right set of let's call it capabilities here on the base, and the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. So there's a huge synergistic effect on that. So certainly the right place with the right cost and the right people. Uh, I don't have to tell you, but we live in, in the greatest state, and certainly I would argue one of the greatest communities uh, anywhere in the world here. And so because of that and the support that we have from the community and the interest in people serving the cause better, bigger than themselves, We've been well over 100% in our manpower in recruiting. Uh, we, we retain nearly everyone uh, that, uh, you know, almost for an entire career. And so there's a lot of places that can't say that, uh, quite frankly. And so I, it's the right place, the right cost, the right people. That's outstanding. I think that a lot of folks uh, throughout the state who may be less familiar with the 134th are going to be pretty impressed when they hear about all the accomplishments of this this outstanding unit. So for our closing question, we like to ask our guests to provide some advice to younger airmen and soldiers who might be listening. So what is one piece of leadership advice that you would give, sir? So I, if I had to boil it down to one, one thing, I, when I was brand new, somebody said, let me give you the key to success. And his one key to success was really three keys to success. He said, know and do your job, know and do your job, know and do your job. Let me break that down for a second, and I'll try and emphasize it differently. He said, number one, you have to know and do your job. So before you before you start doing something, you've got to learn the skills, the craft. Take the time to invest yourself in what it takes to make yourself an expert at the task that you've been asked to do. All right. The second piece of that was know and do your job. So once you know it, You've got to put action behind that. There are plenty of people that are really, really smart. When you take somebody that's really, really smart or really, really invested and has put the effort into learning their craft, and now they put action behind it to actually do their craft, you're starting to make somebody really, really effective. And and it'll set. And I promise you, it will set you apart in a hurry from from your counterparts and peers around you. And then the last one is know and do your job, right? And so the piece of that that I think is is really important for someone is it's pretty easy to sit around and Monday, Monday morning quarterback, throw stones, etc. at everything that's going on around you. 
But if you take a hard look at the mirror and ask, what is it that I'm doing? And you take the ownership of, of the task at hand or the responsibility that you've been given. You put all those three things together, and I can promise you uh, those, are, those are going to lead to success uh, throughout, throughout a, a career. It's the attitude that drives the effort, that puts in the time, that builds the skills, that will win the day uh, when it happens. Well, that is outstanding advice. And Colonel Lee Hartley, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you, sir.